0: If we walk around our cities in Aotearoa, they feel like colonial spaces. This is changing, slowly, but on the whole, they don't feel very Māori. In general, they don't reflect the Ho or local people of that place. Our cities in New Zealand have, for the most part, taken shape according to Eurocentric values. Pre and early European contact, Māori had kāinga and pā where all the major cities were founded but were dispossessed of their land in order for these cities to be built. Māori concerns have historically been understood as rural, despite the fact that most Māori live in cities, and urban spaces are tūranga waiwai for a number of iwi and hapū. So, what is a decolonised city anyway?
1: We wanted to explore this idea of decolonisation, and that really started from not really understanding what that might mean in relation particularly to the built environment. New Zealand often understands itself to be a rural place. And maybe you've heard people talk about this before, but we're one of the most urbanised countries in the world, and yet we still understand ourselves to be you know, people with sheep, basically. The reasons for exploring that are that it's pretty, it becomes pretty problematic if we conceptualise ourselves as being rural in relation to Māori identity. So what I think happens is people understand Māori-ness <coughs> To be a rural thing, it's not an urban thing. It's not. It's not something that's relevant to the city, and that's problematic in two ways. First of all, it kind of dismisses the mana of the iwi and hapu for whom these places are theirs. So Te Atiawa, Ngāti Ngātus in and Auckland, and so on. It means that their identities aren't represented well in the built environment, and I think.
0: The, the second thing is really about a sort of general kind of erasure of indigeneity in the built environment. Te koutou katoa, no mai heimi, kita indigenous urbanism. Aotearoa Edition, Episode 18. I'm your host Jay Kaki and this is Indigenous Urbanism. Stories about the spaces we inhabit and the community drivers and practitioners who are shaping those environments and decolonizing through design. On this episode of Indigenous Urbanism, we travel to Porirua to learn about imagining decolonised cities, a project designed to stimulate discussion around what our cities could look, feel, sound, taste and smell like if they were decolonised. The project did this through eliciting utopian ideas for a decolonised city through a public urban design competition and a public symposium where speakers were invited to respond to the provocation, what is a decolonised city? We spoke with Dr Rebecca Kittle, Nongati Ngāti Porou Rāwako Ngāpuhi, a senior lecturer at Victoria University of Wellington and leader of the Imagining Decolonised Cities project.
2: E no e ko 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 e I did the whole talk, I did the e So I'm e Ngāpohi, but I grew up in Kahunanu territory. And yeah, my name's Becky Kittle and I'm a senior lecturer in environmental studies at Victoria University. That project came about because I had spent a few years overseas, so I was overseas for about 10 years. And I came back and sort of felt a little bit like our built environments hadn't moved on all that much since I had left. There was obviously some real gains in some areas of the country particularly around sort of uptake of the Te principles in Auckland. But for the most part, Māori were seen to be sort of excluded from decision-making processes around just the form and function of our cities. In parallel with that, there's a real sense of pain, I guess, amongst Māori communities around what cities were and meant to them. And that pain is is for obvious reasons. All the sort of government policies post-World War II that sort of led Māori into the cities and sort of led to the demise of of things like culture and language and has caused a whole lot of pain amongst many Māori communities. Those are those coming from other rohe to be in the cities. But there's also pain amongst iwi for whom the city has always been there, papakainga or their... Turanga Waiwai or whatever, so a sort of double-edged pain going on around cities of Māori. But I think the problem of conceptualising cities as all of being about painful reminders of terrible government policy is that we can miss out on the opportunities of cities, which I think there are many, and many of us younger Māori are quite keen to live in cities because there's lots of opportunities to be who you want to be and live in ways that you want to live. But there obviously could be more in terms of cities supporting Māori tikanga and just ways of being, I guess. So talking to some colleagues around the place here at Vic, we decided that we'd really like to explore this idea of decolonisation. And it's kind of a lofty term, decolonisation, that's sort of used often in very sort of highfalutin ways and I was like, well, what does that mean exactly? What does it really, really mean? And I think sometimes it's quite hard to um, make tangible the notion of decolonisation. So the whole project was really about us trying to work out what decolonisation means for cities and doing that by in what we hoped was quite a sort of democratic way, actually, by sort of opening up this competition to New Zealanders, all New Zealanders, not just Māori. And the reason it wasn't just for Māori is because we're very firmly of the opinion that decolonisation, whatever that might mean, is the work of everyone, not just Māori. I mean, Māori are so sort of overcapitalised, is that the right word? They're drawn on for to be involved in a whole heap of things and capacity is pretty low in terms of ability to be able to kind of influence a whole host of things. So decolonisation's got to be a shared effort if we're actually ever going to achieve it. So that was the kind of impetus, really, was about getting some tangible ideas about what it might mean for the built environment. So the competition was funded by UNESCO, well, the New Zealand arm of UNESCO, I think it's called the National Commission for UNESCO, and as I said, we, we opened it up to anyone, We but we were particularly interested in three categories. So under 18-year-olds, we wanted a youth perspective. And the reason we wanted a youth perspective is because our thinking was that often young people are less sort of muddied, I guess, by the impact of colonisation. And so we were hoping that they would have some really great ideas that perhaps are not sort of rooted in in a real kind of strongly held sense of the impact of colonisation, which I think many of us older generation might have. And then we wanted a sort of open it up to the general public. So we were really clear that we wanted anyone to be able to be involved in the competition because those who live in cities are experts in living in cities. So therefore, why wouldn't they have good ideas in thinking about decolonisation for cities? And then finally, we were keen to involve professionals as well because it's their bread and butter. And we wanted to see if they also had some interesting ideas for the city. With the young people, we were quite clear that we wanted to make sure that they felt able to participate. So we were concerned that if we just sort of threw it open, young people might not necessarily take part. So we worked with school age, secondary school age children at um, Altia and Mana Colleges in Ponindura. And we did a couple of two to three day Wananga with students to teach them and give them some urban design skills and some communication skills that they might use to enter the competition. And a lot of them did enter, not everyone entered, but many of them did enter. But in the meantime, they got to experience um, the architecture school at VAC and see what it might be like to come to university and just give them some opportunities to understand what university life might be so that they might be interested in coming.
0: The Public Urban Design Competition encouraged people to think about how we might decolonise cities in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Two sites at two different scales were offered on which to consider the question, what is a decolonised city? At the larger scale is the one apoto arm of the Te or Porirua and Shoreline.
2: Partly we chose that because with a new roading system, transmission gully, the eastern side of the harbour is going to change dramatically over the next few years. And the local council were keen to get ideas about how they might redevelop the harbour. Harbour also was, was a key site for Ngāti head of the local iwi. It was sort of their food basket, and it was also the place where they went to heal over the years, and often due to government policy like the Public Works Act, The harbour had been systematically polluted and now is somewhere that they can no longer collect kaimoana or go to sort of bathe.
0: At the smaller scale is a Papakainga site owned by the Parai Fano. One of the impacts of colonisation was the loss of what is now urban land from iwi and hapu ownership. In Porirua, Ngāti Toa Rangatira lost many acres of land, often via the Public Works Act.
2: We had a papakainga site, which was based on some land that a local whānau, the Pārai farno, had had actually bought back from the government, despite it being taken from them under the Public Works Act. They fought for many years and finally were able to purchase it back. And their vision is to develop a papakainga for their farno on this piece of land.
0: I teamed up with fellow architecture graduate Jessica Hong and landscape architecture graduates Fiona Ting and Tosh Graham to create a competition entry for the Papakainga site. Our team sat down to have a kōrero with Simon Palmer Ngai a researcher on the Imagining Decolonised Cities project.
3: Obviously a group that participated in the competition here. How did you guys all come together to work on this project?
0: We are like mutual
4: friends. That's Jessica Hong. We all heard about this separately and then we wanted us to set up a group and then Friends with
5: Apollonius, who's also part of the group, and I know Jay's from studying with her at Epitech and so here, so we all grouped together.
3: So, between you, how would you define decolonisation, or how did you define it in the project as a team?
4: A big part of the way we described it in the project was around reoccupying Whenua Māori as a political and decolonising act. I suppose one of the big co for me, well, Possibly my life's work actually is <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> around rebuilding our kāinga, of, you know, both in terms of socially and economically, and how we can return to the best of a uh, land-based and interconnected, interdependent approach, but also taking on the best of new technology. So for me, that's kind of the heart of decolonization because I think that means that you know we're able to provide for ourselves, provide for our children, and build our roles of yucky whilst also circumventing or having an alternative to free market capitalism, which is the dominant system of the day. And I do think it has the opportunity to be both politically and economically transformative. I suppose, like, in the context of the
6: particular site that we looked at...
0: That's Fiona Ting.
6: Decolonisation was really about how do we enable Kostana to split up their homes in a way that's going to... Them. And obviously, like there was a tension with the fact that it was a competition, and we didn't have like any meaningful relationships with the Fano. I guess it was about like, yeah, what does Timor Lautina kind of look like on their land? I guess, mm. and designing the kind of like wakāinga. I thought it was
5: a cool opportunity to um, design something like what these guys are saying for self-determination. I think that's a big thing that's been missing in maybe like all rounds. A society, yeah. and um, for this to be like a good platform for Cordova and including Mana as well as the community, I think like engaging them. Although we weren't able to like actually go to them, I think like it was a real cool idea that it got it got this real big focus, like yeah, universities and people looking at it. It really highlighted what even like what jay has been working on for quite a while. But then all of a sudden people are like, oh, hey, actually this is like, this is good. This is yeah, good. And like it's grassroots up and it's, yeah, it's everything that we kind of want for our people, but our own ideas that are best for ourselves and yeah.
3: I'm just wondering what Maori values you considered in your design process. I
4: would say we didn't necessarily consider Maori values I think we considered the values of that whanau as they Mm. well they told the research team in the development of that brief so they were quite clear about the fact that you know whanau was very important to them caring for each other was important to them they had large families with lots of kids the importance of sports um, relationship with their harbour and the ability to collect kai the stories about their grandparents you know I think they kind of I mean, we we weren't involved with that brief development process, but I think it was quite thorough, and I'm sure we would have learnt new things if we'd been able to talk to them and work with them directly. Mm. So really just trying to respond to those things rather than applying any kind of generic Māori values.
3: In the area, in Porirua, there's quite a mixture of people. Obviously, the project was geared towards the, the Tangata Whenua. I'm wondering if you were considering... Any other identities in that region as well incorporated in your project, I mean?
6: I think the nature of the site that we looked at probably, yeah, didn't really feel like it was high on the priority list. But, yeah, I think it would have been interesting and will be interesting to hear the answers of how the groups that tackled the wider Poreroa site
4: incorporated or didn't incorporate
6: those values.
4: Mm-hmm. So we did talk about what if we built at a higher density and what were the implications of that. And as we talked about it as a group, we kind of rationalised that the only way that would make sense would be if you considered the wider context and kind of master planned that wider area and looked at how that density might increase over time. And it wouldn't make sense to do it in isolation on that site without that explanation. And so I think if you undertook that exercise, that would mean kind of looking at people's uh, comfort with density and how cultural values and demographics might have an impact.
3: How was were catered for in your design process, I guess?
4: Well, not really at all because it wasn't allowed by the competition, but we did allude to the process that we would look to undertake if this was being done as a real project. Okay. So yeah, out- outlined that briefly in the one-page text document that went into the entry. Mm-hmm. But as it was, we didn't have access to the key people, so all we had was the written brief provided. Mm-hmm. and. Yeah, I don't know. Is it worth talking about what the process might be like otherwise? or?
3: Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah.
4: Well, i just talk briefly about some of the processes I use and I'm, and I'm sure others will have similar or complementary kind of methods. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the stuff in my work will involve kind of starting with koi and just starting to achieve things, build consensus around the idea of the project. It might involve hikoi over the land. It might involve sharing stories about the fenua and the experiences on it. Mm-hmm. Which can be used to produce oral histories and cultural maps that would go alongside the more conventional site analysis and inventory. And it might involve going through, you know, participatory design. One, I'm going to, to talk through options and test ideas and socialize ideas, I think is a big part of it. So I quite like using kit kind of parts type setups, but I'm interested in how new technology could be utilized in that process as well. Although sometimes simplest is best. Mm-hmm. I think Jay outlined kind of a
6: lot of the different processes that you might usually use in a project like that in, in real life. And you kinda of alluded to like new how new technologies can be utilized for kind of accelerating or helping like the co design might have I just thought I'd mention one of the projects I've been working on recently. Uh, we're working with um, a monothenial group in Auckland and, yeah, just using things like we've kind of been experimenting with when we socialise ideas, we have, like, a 3D model that they can actually, like, play around and, like, use a touchscreen with and, like, move different elements. And um, that's just been, well, like, a little project for designing a nursery that they run.
3: You kind of touched on it, but just a little bit more on your motivation to participate in this project. Honestly, that was probably one of the first... Times that I've seen
6: something like a public competition or a very public project talking about both decolonisation and what that looks like in the built form or the urban form in particular. Obviously, there's lots of work that's already happening, but yeah, I think often there's talk about kind of in kind of non-indigenous spaces or like majority non-indigenous spaces. There's talk about kind of indigenous design or um, yeah, you know, like working with mana whenua and what that process might look like in design. Mm. So I was really interested to enter and work with other people who either had experience in this or um, were also kind of interested. Yeah,
5: This sort of thing has always kind of interested me, but um, I think it wasn't until I was doing my thesis work that was actually based in the islands, so I'm part sample, part Māori, I still felt like going over there and helping with. Instruction and seeing like who was involved and like the stakeholders. I still felt like the other and I could also see like the power dynamics that were happening as well and how it wasn't quite reaching the community or different dynamics like that. Valuing like more to kind of practice that is like right for their own communities and where they're from. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, just other people coming in with their own ideas, which is more like colonization all over again. I, I it, real, it was like was a real struggle seeing that happen in the island. So I think like coming back, yeah, and then seeing this competition happening, I don't know. I just it felt right.
0: Like this is something that should be happening on the broader scale. We asked Rebecca about the kind of entries the urban design competition attracted. We got I
2: think 42 entries in the end. The other thing that we did
0: to make it accessible was
2: we allowed people to submit in whatever medium or mode that they wished. So we got poems and master plans and haka and waiata, got a board game, essays, all sorts of submissions, which allowed people to submit in a way that they felt most comfortable submitting. What we got back was some really, really interesting ideas about and some quite controversial, actually, ideas about how to decolonize the place. We got back some quite traditional ideas about almost reinstating the land to what it was, sort of redeveloping par sites with sort of punga fences and that kind of thing, right through to sort of more temporary kind of interventions in the landscape. So not exactly built form, but little interventions that might be temporary and used to test ideas before moving on to something a bit more permanent. One of the most controversial ideas was from an American submitter who had sort of looked at the demography of of the demographics of, of Porirua and found that there was a high Pacific population there And so her proposal was a series of Pacifica villages that supported a whole range of different Pacifica people. So you would have the sort of Tuvaluan kind of village and the Samoan village or, or whatever. And that caused a lot of controversy within the judging team. This contentious one was really tricky because for some it felt like the role of Ngāti Toa wasn't well articulated, their role as kaitiaki and mana whenua of this place, whereas for others this was a sort of forward-thinking, how do we cope with a sort of multicultural society, particularly given the impact of climate change on some of the Pacific Islands, which will mean a whole lot of new migration to New Zealand.
0: Our guest reporter today was Simon Palmer. Thank you to the New Zealand Centre for Sustainable Cities who hosted and recorded the seminar which we featured at the beginning of this episode. The Imagining Decolonised Cities project is a collaboration between Ngāti Toa Rangatira and Victoria University of Wellington. You can find out more about the project at idcities.co.nz. Indigenous Urbanism is a production of Tamatabihi. Sandy Wakefield does our sound recording, editing and mixing. Our theme was composed by Thomas Burton. I'm Jane Kake, your host and executive producer. For more information about today's show and other episodes of Indigenous Urbanism, go to indigenousurbanism.net. You can drop us a line at info@indigenousurbanism.net. And if you like what you're hearing, please give us a review or rating on iTunes. Coming up next on Indigenous Urbanism... In part two of our story on the Imagining Decolonised Cities project, we talked to some of the practitioners who were involved in a day-long free public hui held at Takapu Wahia Marae in Porirua, which invited public dialogue on the question, what is a decolonised city?
5: And he just said, why don't they like Māori? And he pointed up at the signs, he goes, there's no Māori words. I don't know how to read that like that. So it really is apparent to, you know, a five-year-old that their environment doesn't represent who they are.